So in this survey we sent out, we asked what I wish I knew when I began my career. And I said this last week, I'll say it again this week, this is just pure gold. Like it's priceless reflection and perspective from people who are in a later life stage as they look back. And so last week, if you were gone, we talked about the importance of wisdom, and the, the statement was, what I wish I knew when I was a teenager, and that was just, you know, especially middle schoolers and high schoolers and college age, hearing from people what their priorities were looking back. But this week, we're looking at what I wish I knew when I began a career. And so I read through every single one of these responses. Some of you listed your, your name and email. Some of you were anonymous, and there were a lot of them. This amazing reflections, perspectives as you look back and even as you're living in it, some of you now, before retiring. And so what I found were four common responses. And so I kind of condensed these four responses, and I'll quote some of them specifically. But the fourth most popular response, what I wish I knew when I started my career. Number four, I wish I would have known the importance of savings. Which would have known the importance of savings. And this is so, you know, especially if you're in your 20s, your 30s, you're, we have people responding into our lives saying, do it now. Even if you save a little bit, it matters, it counts. If you were here several months ago, we did the money series. We talked about compound interest, how especially if you're in your 20s, the amount that will accrue over time if you just start to save. And so some of the things that people said were save for retirement and college specifically. Long-term planning. Right? These, are, these are people saying, I wish I would have done this better. I love the uh, balanced approach uh, that somebody said. This is an exact quote, exact response. They said, start saving on day one and be adventurous. I don't know exactly what they had in mind, their context there, but I love that a balanced approach to life. Be wise right, and save for the long term, but have fun in the meantime. Right? I think it's a pretty wise, balanced approach. Third most popular answer. I wish I would have known that I work for God and get paid by my employer. Probably not something you want to say to your boss out loud, but it's an understanding, proper understanding perspective that you need to have when you are working, right? You don't want to say to your boss, well, I'm not working for you anyway, I'm working for God, but that's an understanding of our primary motivation, which is what we're going to talk about mostly today. Number two most popular answer, I wish I would have known that my career was not my life and that my family came first. I regret long hours at work that caused me to miss some of my children's growing up moments. This is where it gets, there's some deep regret here for some parents and some, for some grandparents looking back and be like, wow, that really wasn't worth it. No, not too many people I've ever talked to say, I wish I could go back in my life and put in more hours at my job. Not a common regret for people at the end of their lives. Number one most popular answer, choose what you love over what makes you the most money. Choose what you love over what makes you the most money. Now, you have to be in a position to provide for your family, right? And so some of you parents maybe have navigated this, and, you know, your kid wants to do something that you know there's no way in the world they're ever getting paid for that passion or that thing that they love. And so there's some wisdom in being discerning there as far as what you can do to provide for yourself and the people that God puts under your care. But what these people are speaking into is don't chase the paycheck. Don't make money the primary Thing that you consider when you consider a degree or a job itself, because these are people looking back saying, wow, yeah, I made a lot of money, but I wish I would have gone about my priority list and, and choosing to do something that didn't make me miserable for 40 plus years. Wow, that's great. I could have a lot of money, but I didn't really enjoy the process of making that money. And so we consider, this is the process that we're entering into in this conversation today, where does God have me examining my passions, my talents, my giftedness, and the opportunity, the places he's put me in? How has he set me up to succeed? 
in a way where I can thrive and I can provide for my family. Now, here's, here's some bonus advice. This is an exact quote from one responder. Don't put anything in that email that you wouldn't want everyone in the company to read should you accidentally hit the reply to all button. Pretty sure they're speaking to specific experience there. This is some bonus advice. So what's the point of work anyway? Like, what's the point? Right? Is this punishment from God? It's like, well, you know, I created a perfect world, but y'all messed it up, and so here's your punishment, right? And now you have to go to work. It's something that we do. It's just a necessary evil. Or could there be something more? This is so interesting when you look at Scripture, and, and when, in this context of work, it's a very narrow focus, but it's something that we see literally since the beginning of time. Work was God's creation. It wasn't a result of sin. And so the reality is we were created to work. And when I was looking at this, it was interesting that in Genesis 1, it talks about God's work of creating the heavens and the earth is the same word that is used for us in the work that we get to do. That's pretty crazy because I think of God, he's all powerful and his work is like pretty awesome. But then there should be like a lesser, different word for work when it comes to our human work, but it's the same. And God has created us in his image to reflect him in work itself. So the activity of God is the same word used for ordinary work. So here it is, the timeline. After God created the heavens and the earth, we then read in Genesis 2, 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, right? It's barren land. No plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one, here it is, to work the ground. So God, he could have, you know, he he created the heavens and the earth and all that is existing at that time, but he had it in mind that he would create man and then woman to cultivate, to work the ground. So that's what he did. Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Garden of Eden was a perfect place. No sin, right? Like it was just paradise. And so everything was just natural. There was no struggle. There was no frustration. And man's responsibility was to work the ground. Now, this idea of work, and it's so important to understand as we practically live this out, is the idea of bringing something to its fullest potential. So in this room, there's a hundred different careers and jobs and tasks represented. But collectively, when we enter into the workplace, our primary task, according to God, is to bring whatever potential exists in whatever is in front of us to its fullest potential, right? So we go after it with the right mindset, the right posture. Now, so let me be clear. God did not put man in the garden, a perfect place, and say, eat, drink, and be merry, right? Just have fun, right? I'll provide all the food and drink that you need and just, just sit back, relax. It's going to be great. Like the, and the garden had everything that, it, that anyone would need. There was an abundance of things. But he put man in the garden to work it, to keep it, to cultivate it, to expand it. And so he's going to have to maintain it, right, to keep this up. And so he's going to find fulfillment in that work. But unfortunately... There's something else that was interjected into the world because of man, because of Adam and Eve, right? The first two humans to make the wrong decision in the history of the world brought sin into the world. And now there's a whole separate conversation for another time, but I think we understand that, you know, in the garden, you know, there was a lot of good stuff going on there and, you know, they could eat from any tree that they wanted except for this one tree. And so maybe you've been in that place, like your parent says to you, you can do whatever you want, just don't do this one thing. Well, now all all they want to do is that one thing. Well, since I can't do that, now I really want to do that. That's called temptation. Adam and Eve fell to that temptation, and because they decided that that was going to be what they wanted, they went after what they wanted, even though God said they they shouldn't go after that. Sin then entered the world, and this changed the context of work and what it meant to work. This is so important to understand. 
When sin entered the world, work then became a struggle. And when I was reading through this, it was interesting that both curses that we read that God puts into man and into woman are in the context of work. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, for all the moms in the room that, you know, gave birth to a child the natural way, you're like, yeah, okay, I needed somebody to blame, right? Like, that's, that was a major bummer, to say the least. Love the result, right? Love that I have kids. But that process, I'm assuming, was naturally miserable, and that's a direct result of sin itself. That was a curse because sin was brought in the world. But then he goes on for the man. He said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But here it is, thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you. That's because of sin. He says, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So again, the garden naturally had an abundance of food. But now Adam has to struggle through what scripture says, thorns and thistles. And so, you know, if you're working a garden, you're working, you know, outside, probably not today, but most days you're working up a sweat, right? And so sweat didn't exist before sin. You can do the hard work, but it's, it's, come, it's going, to, going to come more easily. There's going to be total fulfillment. But now because of sin, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be frustration. So now let's bring it you know, to modern era, era full, full-time reality, right? This is why we now have paper cuts. This is, come on now, like this, this is the result of sin, right? Now, now you can take out your frustration on someone else, and you don't need to cuss anymore. You'd be like, all right, thanks, Adam and Eve, for that. Of course, we all know if we're humble enough, we would have messed it up as well. We got paper cuts, you got empty, you know, printer cartridges. You're like, come on, man. We can just blame sin for everything, but take some little bit of ownership in that, right? We got computer viruses because the result of sin. When I was a junior and senior in high school and I worked at Arby's fast food and I would work the closing shift, because of sin, I would go home and my shirt would smell like a beef and cheddar sandwich. <laughs> you might like beef and cheddar sandwiches. I like I like them as well, but you don't want your clothes smelling like them forever. Because of sin, I would wash my Arby's work shirt. I would dry my Arby's work shirt. Come on, my mom did that part, but (laughs) full disclosure. And it would still smell like a beef and cheddar sandwich. That is a result of sin. So I know that's dramatic. I know that's a little bit trite, but that's the reality that we live in. Now that's the theology of work. Now we're going to turn the corner for what it means for our everyday lives. The first thing is we have to understand we were created to work and work is meant to be fulfilling. Well, we were created to work. It's not a consequence of sin. God created us to work. It's meant to be fulfilling. But the second part is, because of sin, there are going to be frustrations in our work. And here's where we get real. Here's where we get practical, where every one of us falls in one of two areas. Because of the frustration that exists in our everyday work, in our responsibilities, our everyday tasks, we tend to veer one of two ways. We either choose to worship rest or we choose to worship work. Some people, right, you're living for the weekend, right? Like, you're worshiping rest, right? And all, all of us fall on that scale, you know, somewhere, right? Some of us are more extreme than others. Maybe your job's miserable and you're just living for the weekend. It's just a paycheck. The only reason you're working is because of what it gets you. And it gets what you really want, right? The weekend and what you can pay for, what you have to pay for. And so let's look at when we worship rest, what happens first. We see work as the enemy of what we really want. We're constantly trying to get out of work or do as little as possible to get by at work so we can do what we really want to do. There's a conversation that happened when I was 19 years old that was a very trite, would have been a meaningless conversation in most contexts, but I don't know if maybe you've had these at some point in your life where like, I don't know why that stuck with me, but it did. And so 
I was working in Atlanta, Georgia, an inner city church that was specifically for homeless men and women that would come in on Sundays and we'd have a service, we'd get them food and clothing, distribute all those kinds of items. And when I first started as an intern, it was the summer after my freshman year of college, John Vernon, the pastor, he asked me to clean the baptistry. It's like, okay, you know, and you, I don't know if you know your first day, like, I don't feel like I was, I was excited, but I wasn't really like motivated to do like task-based stuff. I was there to do ministry, you know, homeless men and women. I was excited about that. But the first thing he had me do was, you know, something that was pretty boring, right? Clean the baptistry. I mean, you know, trying to connect meaning to that. But here's the conversation that really has stuck with me. Afterwards, I, I was done cleaning it and went back downstairs to where John was and to ask him what he wanted me to do next. And he was like, oh, wow, you're done with that already? The last guy, he would take as long as he possibly could because he wouldn't really want to work that hard and get on to the next thing. Well, part of me was like guilty. He was like, oh, I feel like I kind of did that a little bit. Like I, I really could have done that probably a little bit more quickly. But that, for some reason, that stuck with me. The mindset that like, well, I'm just going to go through the motions, do as little as I possibly can, and just try to, to get by with the bare minimum, you know, so somebody doesn't fire me, and they at least say, well, you did a good enough job. And that stuck with me when it comes to work ethic and motivation and what I'm about. But I know for, for many of you, you've maybe been in a job for far too long where you are going through the motions. You are just putting in your time. And it's absolutely boring. You're not connecting any meaning at all to your, to your work. And so maybe you're entirely unmotivated going through the motions and I think the, the organization that gets the, you know, the, the worst probably reputation for this is the DMV. Like nobody's like, oh yeah, that, that, that's an organization. Right? They're just killing it. They're just getting it done. They do a great job. Like, you know, for better or for worse, because there's got to be some good situations out there, maybe. But whenever I go in there, I don't know. I always think about what's worse, waiting in line, you know, for whatever it is I'm waiting for, or imagining working there myself. I can, I, can, I can never bring myself to the point of asking someone, like on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you hate your job? Because it seems like, you know, some of them really I can act like they hate their job. All that to say, I came across a movie, and I know many of you have seen it as well, called Zootopia. <laughs> yeah, we're showing the clip, heads up. And we're going to show like two minutes, which is longer than is necessary to get the point, apart, point across, because it's just that hilarious. But you have literal sloths, animated movie, literal sloths, working at the DMV. So I don't know, this might be stepping on your toes. This might be too accurate of a picture of your current job situation, but check it out. Flash is the fastest guy in there. You need something done, he's on it. I hope so. We are really fighting the clock and every minute counts. Wait, they're all slots? Are you saying that because he's a sloth, he can't be fast? I thought in Zootopia, anyone could be anything. Flash, flash, 100-yard dash. Buddy, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Hey, Flash, I'd love you to meet my friend. Uh, darling, I've forgotten your name. Hmm. Officer Judy Hap, CPD, how are you? I am doing just fine as well as i can be hmm. what hang in there can i 
do. Well, I was hoping you could run a place for you. Well, I was hoping you could today. Well, I was hoping you could run a play for us. We are in a really big hurry. Sure. What's the plate? Two nine T number. Two nine T H D zero three. Two nine. THD03. T. HD03. H. D03. D. Mm-hmm. Zero, 03. Zero. 03. <laughs> I told you, I could have just shown 30 seconds to get the point across, but that's hilarious. For some of you, you're like, man, that's my daily life, right? Like, you're living that. Like, that's an accurate picture, description of that. But here's a consequence for worshiping rest while at work, right? That's a dramatic, you know, depiction of what it could look like. But, you know, part of it is our laziness does keep us from productivity, right? From doing a, 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 the job that we could, could do if we went all out. But there's more at stake. More importantly, the mentality of living for the weekend, so to speak, can keep us from honoring God with the gifts and opportunities he has given us. Like, he wants us to live on purpose, and you're unique, right? There's nobody else like you. He shaped you, you know, for this time, right? There's scriptures that speak into how your life at this time is on purpose. It's not by accident. And so he places you in certain situations, circumstances, to embrace the opportunity that is in front of you to go all out. And so, you know, I was just talking to someone after the 930 service. They were talking about how they bounced around jobs, you know, you know for, you know, like eight to ten different times in their life. They literally moved. Because in, in the conversation we were having is oftentimes people ask, well, what is God's will for my life? And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Well, I better get this right because if I do this, I'm going to honor God. If I do this, I might not. The reality is God wants to use us wherever we are. So you, many of you are not living out your dream job, right? You're, what you're doing, you don't want to do forever. But what you're doing right now, it counts. It matters. When you get up tomorrow morning, God wants to use you where you are as you are. And so it's, it might be a job where it's easy to check out, but God wants to use, it, use you for his specific purposes. That's no small thing. So let me put it this way. The discipline of being fully present wherever we are maximizes our availability to be used by God. And this supersedes even work itself. The, the discipline to choose, like, I'm here. I don't want to be here. I'm putting in my time. But the reality is I am here. And because this is the only place I am right now, it's the only place I can truly make a difference. If I make myself fully available to God, he promises to use me. So in the eyes of God, it's important to know there is no such thing as meaningless work. I know some of you are like, hey, you haven't been to my job. There's absolutely meaningless work. But here's what it says in Colossians chapter 3. Hold on to this. Some of you really need to know this. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. I can't believe that the word whatever is in there. You think that he would qualify that. Now, we probably should be clear and qualify it. Anything that is not sinful, right? The, you know, there are certain things, certain jobs, unfortunately, out there that would you know, encourage sin or that are sinful in of themselves. But it's saying that there is no meaningless task. There is no, no thing too small that you can do that God looks like, well, it doesn't really matter. It's saying if you're working for God, your work, your effort matters. No task is too small to bring glory to God and to make a difference. So God himself was essentially a gardener you think about how he came into the world, you know, even before Adam, and he set it up there, and like he, you know, was, was creating the heavens and the earth, but he didn't have some flashy title where the world looked like, wow, that's a gardener, that's a big deal. And then Jesus, when he came into the world as a carpenter, that's not a career, I mean, 
It's a pretty humble profession. But I love how God exemplifies this in saying there is no small thing. And the thing that we deem to be small, he actually has significance on. Knowing who you are really working for determines how hard you work when no one is looking, doesn't it? Well, we've been there, haven't we? Knowing who you are really working for will determine how hard you work when no one is looking, right? Boss is out, went to lunch, like, all right, I'm just going to kind of check out. Come on, we've all, we've all done it. Just kind of kind of coast. The person in charge is not really watching. Now, I also want to qualify this because I've had several conversations over the years with, with stay-at-home moms. And I hate how, how much stay-at-home moms really struggle with discontentedness and feeling like they're not doing enough. And so oftentimes, stay-at-home moms will feel like they're, they'll come to me and they'll ask, you know, like, I really want to try to figure out my purpose in life. And so I want to encourage them. I know many of you are living this, this out right now. You're like, oh, I feel like I should be doing more. But it's important for you to know that the work that you're doing, if you choose to stay at home for the primary purpose of raising your kids, there is no greater responsibility. You're choosing to literally develop and to raise up the future <laughs> that will surpass your own existence. Now, this is not commentary on what you should do or shouldn't do. Like, everybody has different life circumstances, and some, you know, have, to, you have dual incomes, both have to work, and others choose to stay home. But what I want you, it's so important for you to know that you should not feel guilt at all over that because what you are doing, your primary work, it absolutely counts. It absolutely matters. And come on now, the rest of us, if we had to choose to do that, right, most of us guys, like, you want to trade? No way. No, no, that's not happening. I'll go to my paid job. That's a lot more easy. That's a lot easier than staying at home and trying to do the stay-at-home thing. And so it absolutely matters. You're investing in work that will outlast your own existence. So that's when we can worship rest and have that mindset. But on the other hand, when we worship work itself, work can become our identity. Some of us are inclined to go this way. We don't know ourselves outside of what we do. Us guys are the worst at this. We'll meet guys, other guys, get in conversation, and it's about 20 seconds in. Oh, what do you do? Not necessarily a bad question, but sometimes it can be a loaded question, and we kind of evaluate someone's significance based on what they do, how they spend their days, how they are getting paid. And so we internalize that, and we find our identity in what we produce and what we, what we do. We find our significance in the acquisition of money, power, or success. This person is typically unable to unplug from work, no matter, even if you're on vacation, Right? Your phone is your constant companion. Right? If you have a smartphone, there's a thing on there called airplane mode. And if your identity is your work, right, and you worship work itself, and you find all your significance through that, in airplane mode, that's like the enemy of productivity. Because you might be getting a text, you might be getting an email, you might be getting a voicemail. Like You've got to be on, you've got to stay connected. But the consequence is true rest is elusive. Because you're always on, you're always connected. And your family gets your leftover energy. Because all your motivation, energy, and focus has gone toward your work. Life is out of balance, to say the least. And the crazy reality that we see from God himself is that he created the heavens and the earth and man and everything that followed in six days, and then they add seventh day, and it says that he rested. Well, he's God. He didn't rest because he was tired. <laughs> there must be something more. He rested to give us an example of what it looks like, of what is absolutely necessary. So let me be very clear. If what you do for work makes your family life worse, you are failing at the highest priority God has placed on your life. If whatever it is that you do for work, your career, if you're finding your identity in that and your family is suffering, you're failing at your primary responsibility in life that God has placed upon your life, and that is to invest and build and develop your family. One of my friends who has come to church here for a while, uh, four or five months ago, he was faced with a job opportunity, a high-paying job opportunity. 
And of course, it's you know one of those that you're like, wow, it's a lot of money. He didn't. It was so much money. He didn't even bother telling me how much money. I can only imagine. But uh, he's faced with a situation like, oh wow, I could really do this and this, provide for my family in that way, and college and savings and all that kind of stuff. Thinking about it practically. And this was a situation where the, the people that were wanting to hire him had literally never been rejected by someone before because they kind of went back and forth and they always found a way, right? Like, it's a law firm, right? And so that's just what they do. They persuade you to, 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 to be hired and to join them. And he eventually shocked them. They were literally shocked that he said no because of two reasons. Because he wanted to be able to spend the time that he wanted with his family. He wanted to be able to serve at church. That was foreign to this, this culture, right? Probably. But he was very clear in his priorities, like, yeah, that's a lot of money I could do a lot with, but it's not worth it. I understand my primary responsibility is to invest and develop my family. Now, that's a man planning to have no regrets about work-life balance at the end of his life, isn't it? So there's this thing called the Sabbath. When God rested, he exemplified what this day of rest, right, that we see in the Sabbath should exemplify. It's a day of rest where you do nothing that contributes to your job. And for some of you, that sounds extreme. That sounds ridiculous. But there has to be at least one day a week where nothing that you do that day contributes to your paid job. Because ultimately what it represents is an act of trust. Ultimately what it represents is who you determine to be in charge of your life. See, within the Sabbath, you're reminded that you are not the one who keeps the world running. You're not the one who ultimately provides for your family or even the one who keeps your work projects moving forward. The only reason we have opportunity, the only reason we have responsibility in our jobs is because God has allowed it. And it's through his sovereignty that we even have the opportunity to contribute anything of value to the world around us. He's the one that's holding us up. He's ultimately our sustainer. And so oftentimes, if we're addicted to our work, it can be, we could be disillusioned by the fact that it is what makes us significant. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't even know who we were or have any significance at all. Your career does not define who you are. Your work is not your identity. So if you want to be miserable at work, decide to make work all about you, what you can get, how you can become someone. Author Tim Keller, he said, thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment slowly crushes a person and undermines society itself. See, the goal is to see the work that we do not as a job, but as a calling that goes beyond our own interests. It's not about climbing the corporate ladder. It's not you know, building wealth, accumulating all that we can. We can look at it like, wow, this is what I've done. Therefore, this is who I am. <laughs> no, God is the one who gives us our significance, gives us our identity. And so there's a lot more that I wanted to cover in this message, but I came across, I don't have the time, but I came across a video that I think concisely touches on a couple of other things that are important when, important when we consider what does it really mean to work? And what is the significance of understanding that when we enter work, we enter into an opportunity to worship God ourselves, and we connect our work to what he has allowed us to do and how we can worship him through our work. Check out this video. Work. Most of us spend over half our lives at work. Whatever it is you fill the nine to five with, planting crops, building cars, taking care of patients, teaching students, or running a business, Work is where most of life happens. For some, work is a drain. They dread Monday mornings, forcing themselves to struggle through because they need the paycheck, while many times feeling trapped and beaten down by their job. Some people love their work. They're good at what they do. It energizes them. It's a place of security, a place to chase dreams, desires, and success. At work, they find fulfillment. We often forget to connect our faith to our work. We don't consider the reasons God may have us at our job. We don't think about the purpose and meaning we could bring to our work. 
We simply focus on how it makes us feel. But what if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? As Christians, we are called to serve Christ with our lives. For a few, that means working as a pastor, a youth minister, or a missionary. Others serve the church by teaching children or singing in the choir. But when Sunday is over, most of us return to our jobs outside the church. For us, our mission is in the marketplace. We may not be the kind of missionary who moves to the far regions of Africa, but around the conference table, around the water cooler, around the cubicle, we have an opportunity to worship the God who created us. He gave us skill. He gave us passion. He gave us work. When we do our jobs with excellence and integrity and diligence, it's an act of worship. We are displaying God's craftsmanship to the non-believing world around us. We are earning the right to be heard. We don't see a divide between Sunday and Monday, between the sacred and the secular. We've been invited into parts of the world that a pastor or a traditional missionary will never see. We have conversations with people who would never set foot in a church. Whether we love or dread our work, we choose to turn the focus away from ourselves and toward the mission God has for us. Church is not the only place we worship, and Sundays are not the only days in our calendars that have meaning. Every day on Mission for God brings us great joy. Like the heroes before us, we can be modern-day Noahs and Josephs and Peters who are called with a purpose. God has designed us. He created us to work and to worship. For us, work is worship. So here we are. We're faced with the opportunity to wake up tomorrow morning. How will I approach my work? So you have your job description. You have the things that you need to get done. And the world and your boss will determine whether or not you're successful by, you know, you need to do those things. But what we don't realize underneath the surface is how we're postured to worship God himself through our work. And the way that we approach that work can bring honor and glory to him. The intangibles, the things that we can't measure. But come on, think about the number of hours many of you have already spent or will spend, Right? working 40-plus hours a week for 40-plus years of your life. I mean, it's a very easy argument to make that our primary opportunity for ministry is in our workplace simply because of the amount of time that we will spend there. But if we compartmentalize our lives and say, I got my, my, got my, my church life here, I got my work life, I got my family life, I got my hobby life, then we will miss out on the opportunity to connect all those things. And so that's one of the reasons why I love that we gather every single Sunday because it hopefully sets us up to be better for the next six days. So when you think about the Sabbath, the day of rest, and for many of you, Sunday it is. It's that day where you pause and you stop, and that's why church should be the safest place in the world, the most restful place, the peaceful place. You get filled up. And ideally, the Sabbath does not exist because we're exhausted from what came before. It exists so that it can set us up to succeed for what comes tomorrow and the rest of the week. So we leave this place motivated, like, God, I'm chasing after you. I still don't like my job. I don't like the tasks that I have to do. I'm kind of miserable at my job, but I understand that when I go at it as a way to worship you, that you will use it. What you do in your workplace is not meaningless. What you do matters. And I know your job description might say otherwise, but God says, you know what, I trump that. And so you go after those things. I will set up opportunities for you to act in the right way that will make a difference to those that you interact with. So let me put it bluntly, whatever your work is, wherever you work, it is always a calling to love your neighbor. It is always a calling to love your neighbor. See, working for God means caring about people and treating people right. This means having a track record of saying what we mean and doing what we say. This is, uh, as Christ followers, there's a high bar. 
It means following through on commitments every single time, whether they're formal or informal. Being a Christ follower in the workplace means being honest. It means being transparent. It means being fair. We should be the most grace-filled, mercy-promoting people in the workplace. We are the people who give people second chances. We don't write people off, right? And I know, you know, you're a boss, you're a manager, and sometimes you have to make fires, but you always go about those things in the right way. You communicate to people, hey, you matter, and I care about you. I'm not writing you off. So here's a question to consider. Are your work relationships a means to your end, your end goal of accruing power, wealth, and comfort, right? Do you see your coworkers as just helping you get done what you need to get done or help promoting you up the corporate ladder? Or do you see your work as a means for maximizing your opportunity to love others? Right? This isn't some touchy-feely thing. You're going to go in and be like, all right, I'm going to socialize more. Like, that's just annoying too, right? You don't go in there and stand around the water cooler and get donuts. You get up every five minutes, right? You got jobs to do. You got to be responsible in that. But every single time you have an opportunity to interact with a coworker, do you see it as an opportunity to love them and maybe surprise them in the best way possible, knowing that you care about them, no matter their position? See, how you treat someone who can do nothing for you says a lot about you. How you treat, choose to treat someone in any capacity of your life, who can do nothing for you, it says a lot about your character. Because oftentimes we only interact with, with people or treat people a certain way, give them the respect that they're due if they can do something for us. But how do you interact with people who they can't really help you, they can't do anything for you? Are you patient with them? Are you kind toward them? You see, Christ and his sacrificial love was the pinnacle of this conversation. He came to earth not just to hang out with us, but to die for us, and there was nothing in it for him. <laughs> it was all for us. And so he exemplified what this looks like to step into somebody's life and say, this is who I'm called to be. Someone who goes all out and showing love and mercy and grace because that's what I've been shown. And out of the overflow of my gratitude for what I've been shown, I can't wait to step into whatever area or capacity that God has me. And for most of us, many days, it will be our workplace, our primary opportunity. Now, a a scripture you might be familiar with and one that I read, never in the context of the workplace, but it struck me when I read it this time, I just thought it was a beautiful potential vision for the workplace. So I want to close with this. James chapter 3, verse 13. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. So whenever you're trying to, work, to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. That describes some of our situations at work, doesn't it? But notice verse 17. It says, real wisdom, God's wisdom begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. A holy life is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. It says you can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. That's a high bar. <laughs> but may we settle for nothing less. As Christ followers, may we be the best coworkers. May we be the best managers and bosses and surprise people in the best way possible because <laughs> we don't write anybody off. We say, you, you matter, your work matters, and I'm showing up to do the best possible work that I can because I understand that I'm, even if I, I might not have a boss, I'm working for God himself, and everything that I do honors him. What a great opportunity, but also a great responsibility that we have.